Hello and welcome to another BTOG podcast. This time our subject is continuing the rare mutations theme that we've been doing for a few months now, actually. And we're moving on to ROS1. Um, I'm still Tom Newsom-Davis, uh, now the chair-elect of BTOG, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by an expert in the field. Uh, Minali Chitnis is a consultant medical oncologist at Oxford University's Hospital. Minali, thank you very much for joining me after a busy day in the clinic to help us understand a bit more about ROS1. Thank you very much for having me, Tom. So we've done a few of these, and as I say, ROS1, I think, is probably one of the rarer mutations we see um, in our rare mutations uh, theme. So as ever, we're going to start at the beginning. And I wonder whether you might just tell us a little bit about what ROS1 is, um, what does it do? Um, and then we're going to be mainly talking about fusions. And if you could perhaps remind people what a fusion is and why does it cause cancer? Absolutely, Tom. So let's start at the beginning, as you said. So ROS1 also called ROS1 proto-oncogene receptor tyrosine kinase. The name sort of gives away what it does. So it's a protein tyrosine kinase um, and it belongs to the insulin subfamily of receptors. So it's quite structurally similar to the anaplastic lymphoma kinase or ALK as we know it. The gene that encodes ROS1 is on chromosome six and basically the protein is a self-surface receptor. We don't really know what the physiological role of ROS1 actually is, but it's probably involved in some differentiation of epithelial tissues during embryogenesis. That's the feeling of its function. Um, and we don't know what its physiological ligand is either. So there's a few things unknown. So it's sometimes called an orphan receptor. Now, going back to fusion proteins, a fusion is basically where there's a chromosomal break and then a rearrangement. And essentially that leads to the joining of two different genes that are either on different chromosomes or sometimes even on the same chromosome. And it's really important to know that not all fusions lead to cancer, but those that do are called oncogenic fusions. And essentially they express these aberrant proteins called oncoproteins, um, which are most typically either kinases or transcription factors that lead to deregulated growth. And that's what happens in the case of ROS1 as well. So if we take ROS1 fusions, they are present in about one to 2% of non-small cell lung cancer. So rare, rare as we know them. And they were first reported in lung cancer in around 2007, though they were reported or discovered prior to that in the eighties, initially in glioblastomas. And what we know is that rearrangement of the ROS1 gene basically leads to fusion of the portion of ROS1 that contains the entire tyrosine kinase domain with a number of many different fusion partners the commonest of which is something called CD74, um, and that's in about 44% of the cases of ROS1 fusions. But there can be many different, I think there's over 20 different uh, fusion partners that have been identified, and I think they will keep coming as well. And essentially what happens is that leads to a kinase which is constitutively active and it drives cellular transformation, hence leading to a cancer such as lung cancer. But like we said, it's not exclusive to lung cancer, it can be found in other cancers as well. Uh, we've mentioned glioblastoma, cholangiocarcinoma, gastric breast ovarian. So there are a few that it can be expressed in. That's fascinating. So actually, we, we yeah. don't actually know what ROS1 does physiologically. And yet, when there's a fusion, we know it can cause a cancer. And there's a number of different fusion partners. But my understanding is, from the point of view of therapies, which we'll get onto in a minute, it doesn't really matter which the fusion partner is. The fact that there's a fusion partner is the most important thing in terms of how we 
move forward. And we should just remind colleagues that we really are talking about fusions here. We're not talking about mutations, point mutations, insertion deletion. So this really is a fusion-driven cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Fusion-driven, definitely. And as you said, the treatment recommendations would be the same for um, any of the ROS1 fusions, regardless of the fusion partner. Okay, that's really interesting. And you, you mentioned the similarities to ALK, and that's something that's always struck me. It's similar in incidence, similar in phenotype, um, and, and also causing, uh, also driven by, by a fusion as well. Um, how should we be finding these fusions? Now, we know that colleagues have quite a range of different molecular tests available to them. Um, some people might be doing immunostochemistry. Some people might be going straight to fish. Some people might be doing RNA-based next-generation sequencing. What's the practice in Oxford, for example? And if you had a magic wand, what would be the best practice? Yeah, so there's never one perfect test, as we'll find with all of these sorts of detection of fusions, et cetera. But what we're doing in our centre, certainly, is we are sending DNA and RNA NGS on all our patients up front. But as we know, um, there's a sort of 21 day turnaround time for the NGS panels and the quality of RNA can sometimes be poor. So it's not necessarily going to give us the result quickly and not always successful. So we are still also running IHC, so immunohistochemistry as a screening tool. We haven't yet given that up. And with ROS1, there is a high sensitivity to the ROS1 immunohistochemistry but unfortunately not as high or not as satisfactory a specificity. Yeah. So it ranges somewhere between 70 to 90%, depending on what clone you use and what the positivity threshold is. So you can get false positives. So IHC alone, a positive IHC alone should not be relied upon necessarily, it really should be confirmed by another test. And that could yeah, be- I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I think that's a bit different. Uh, I, mean, I, I always want to confirm all of them, but I think ALK is, uh, probably a little bit more reliable. I've definitely had quite a few false positives, and certainly, if one's got a weak or moderately positive ROS one, I would definitely be double checking that before before actioning it. Um, you you mentioned RNA based next generation sequencing or NGS. That would be your your go to method. Is that right? Yeah, for us, it. I mean, automatically, um, our IHCs that are positive for ROS will get sent for fish analysis as well. So that's the old pathway, as I call it, and that still hasn't been abandoned until we're getting better rates through our RNA NGS. But yes, um, RNA NGS, where successful, would sort of be our gold standard confirmation in many ways, um, yeah. has many advantages to it. And I think one trouble with the RNA next generation sequencing is that it can be very RNA hungry. And certainly if I look at my panels, which we get that, I'm sorry, we couldn't do it result. It's mainly the RNA panels, not the DNA panels, which I guess is one of the challenges. Um, so I guess what we would say to colleagues is if we're using IHC, that's fine, but double check it. And if we're double checking it with fish or with a next generation sequencing base panel, that's fine. But to rem remind people, it's the RNA panel you need for a fusion or DNA panel is not going to tell you um, about the presence of a ROS fusion. What about ctDNA? I don't know if you're part of the NHS England pilot, which a few of us are. What's your take on ctDNA? Do you use it? And if you do, what do you think is a helpful tool in determining presence of ROS1 fusions? I think ctDNA in general is a useful tool and we are part of the pilot that's, um, that's uh, taking part in this. And I think it's quick and gives results very quickly. It's the question of fusions and the detection of fusions in ctDNA. 
there's questions about, I mean, it's giving you more heterogeneity because you're getting sort of DNA samples, fragments that are in the bloodstream rather than just one small tissue biopsy that may or may not be adequate. But I think so far, some DNA-based sequencing is able to detect the rearrangements. So there is some success in getting diffusion proteins detected as well. Um, I think it's a work in progress. I think we still need to have confirmation on ctDNA, but it's a very valuable tool going forward, I think. Yeah, and I, I, I do quite like ctDNA. I think when it gives you a positive result, it's great. But yeah. what I would say to people is if you've got a negative ctDNA, um, and you've got a high index of suspicion, never smoking patients, we'll get onto in a second. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think you want to be double checking that with other, yeah. other approaches. You have to have some tissue or cytology or something else, some yeah. other approach with a negative one. And that seamlessly, skillfully brings us down to uh, the, the demographics. You yes. mentioned rarity, you mentioned one ish percent of patients, 2% of patients. I agree, I don't see a huge number of patients with ROS1. What's a typical patient demographic from your uh, opinion? So, so you're generally looking at patients who have adenocarcinoma histology. And within them, there's a bit of a range, you know, solid papillary acina, mucinous, different adenocarcinomas, but you're looking predominantly in that group of patients. They tend to be younger. So if you would say your average patient with lung cancer is 70 years old, you're looking more at a median of around 50 years for the ROS1 positive patients. They're usually light or never smokers. And not surprisingly, with some of our mutations, they're diagnosed at an advanced stage, so they often have lymph node involvement and brain metastases at baseline as well. One of the one of the key things with ROS1 as well is that a good sort of proportion of people might, um, well, it's associated with this major thromboembolic risk, so VTEs, yeah, yeah and sometimes even these um, DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation, some of these rare angiopathies is associated with the ROS1 group of patients, which is something just to bear in mind because we don't see that with some of our other uh, um, targeted mutations. I would say reading the literature about up to 35, 36% of patients have brain metastases at baseline, which is quite important in this group as well. You would be doing a baseline MRI on anyone you knew had ROS1? Yeah, we tend to in our center. I know not all centers have access to MRI scanning necessarily, but in our center, and particularly now, because there's more that we can do when we detect brain yeah. metastases, it's not just, you know, there's SRS and other options, stereotactic radiosurgery, et cetera. So we would do a brain MRI unless a patient was absolutely adamant they didn't want it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think it's, it's good practice. And I also agree about that rate of uh, thromboembolic events. I can think of two or three ROS1 patients off the top of my head, and all three of them had APE or DVT at some stage. And it's often actually how they present. Um, and now when anyone presents with disseminated lung cancer with a with a thromboembolic event, I'm always wondering whether they've got ROS1. Um, so it's an important thing. And we mustn't, um, we mustn't ignore our squamous patients as well, Tom, because, you know, if you yeah. if you do get your mixed histology or your squamous patients who perhaps are younger and never smokers, I think yeah. we should be hunting for the driver mutation in those patients as well, because although much, much less common, you can find ROS1 mutations in them as well. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I've had very little push back about doing that you know choose the patients correctly and you're, you're right it's either mixed histology or those with a minimal smoking history um, and as the cost of ngs comes down i think it's more and more an acceptable thing to do so we've got our younger patients um never smokers predominantly um adenocarcinomas nearly always um with, with the rare exceptions we mentioned um any difference in ethnicity or is it more of an even spread it's more of an even spread actually with the ethnicity unlike something like egfr so you get sort of a over 50 50 almost in some 
um, data mm. sets of Caucasian mm. versus ethnic minorities. So no, there's no particular predominance that I'm aware of. So we have an imaginary patient um, with the stage four disease. And as I agree with you, I think people often do present with really quite um, uh, advanced disease with multiple organs involved. You have your confirmatory ROS1, either your fish or your NGS. Um, this is important moment. You're going to choose your, your best agent. Um, I'm going to start off with crizotinib, which has been there for the longest. Uh, feels like an old drug now, somehow. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on the first line data for Criz and ROS1? Because, of course, it wasn't what it was originally designed for. It was designed for ALK. No. Um, we probably all know the side back, uh, sorry, the drawbacks. But if you could just sort of give us a bit of an overview of the data we're talking about with Criz. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of us will be familiar with crizotinib, as you've said, from the ALK days, really. So crizotinib is a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor that inhibits ALK, ROS1 and MET actually as well. Yeah. Um, and because there's this sort of homology between the amino acid binding domain, 77% between ALK and ROS1, you can see why some of the ALK drugs also function well in the ROS1 setting. So for crizotinib, the data comes from the profile 1001 study. Um, which uh, initially reported back in 2014 and then had an updated data analysis in 2019. And it was the phase one expansion cohort of about 50 patients with ROS1 positive lung cancer who were treated with crizotinib. It was at the standard dose of 20, 250 milligrams twice a day. And they were looking for response rate as the primary endpoint. But just looking at the data, basically, we were seeing objective response rates of around 72% and a few complete responses in there. And the responses appeared to be durable with the median duration of response about two years, 24.7 months. The median progression-free survival was about 19.3 months. And you were getting a median overall survival of around four years. So 51.4 months on with the crizotinib data. So, I should remind people that when, when that came out, it's really interesting you mentioned the dates of that. I mean, that was stupendous. Now we're a bit blasé because we've got yeah. three patients like this. But I remember this data coming out and we were we were bowled over by this activity and this group of patients who should do very well for, you know, at least a couple of years on one drug. Yeah, absolutely. So great data and a good first drug to get for this targeted mutation. Um, however, what we also know about crizotinib is some of the side effect profile, for example, that we're familiar with managing in many ways if you've treated out patients, but a lot of GI type side effects. Um, so diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, constipation, um, can be a problem with this drug, but also um, visual impairments and sort of visual changes and um, can be a problem in up to 82% of patients. So there are some side effects that do need managing. Um, and then you've also got these um, sort of problems with liver function, et cetera, fatigue, dizziness, tiredness in a smaller proportion in these patients. But the biggest problem you have with crizotinib is that it's not effectively penetrating the CNS. Yeah. Um, and so what you do see with the crizotinib patients is pretty much CNS progression, sometimes CNS only progression in the first year of treatment on crizotinib. And of yeah. course, we know that that is a big problem having progression in the CNS. And that's one of the big drawbacks, I think, of crizotinib. Absolutely. No, I, I think you're right. And I think that's why other drugs have come in. And, and the next kid on the block was entrectinib, um, which certainly has a better CNS penetration, better control, but it's not an altogether easy drug to give. Um, and 
hasn't really completely taken over from Chrysostom. If you look at national data, what, what's your take on Entrechtnib? I guess, first of all, thinking about activity, do, do you see it being meaningfully different in terms of response rate, progression-free survival, those those kind of aspects? So, so if you just take um, if you take the TKNI, so the the ones who have not previously had a ROS1 inhibitor, yeah. so a bit like comparing to the Chrysostom data, um, you were getting again response rates around sixty-seven percent. Duration of response, 35 months, PFS 17, median overall survival, 47.7 months. So you're getting very, very similar data very similar. to yeah. what you're seeing to chrysotinib. So there's not a yeah. lot within that. However, what you are getting, of course, is the CNS penetration. So you're getting um, a 79% response rate, overall response rates in the patients with brain metastases um, and the PFS about 12 months in patients with brain metastases. So where you have a patient, and if you have a patient with brain metastases at baseline, you've got to you've got to wonder why you might be using chrysotinib. So you might be very tempted then to use something um, something that we know has CNS penetration, such as entrectinib. The problem with entrectinib is, so it's, a, it's again, it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but it has um, ROS1, ALK, and TRAC inhibition as one of its, um, one of its yeah. targets. And some of the toxicities that you get with this drug can be quite, um, can really impair quality of life in a lot of patients. And these, these sort of TRAC inhibitor Inhibition sort of side effects include um, funny taste in the mouth, so the dysgeusia, dizziness, peripheral neuropathy, cognitive changes, weight gain, something yeah. higher, higher risk of fractures sometimes as well. And this withdrawal pain when you stop the drug as well, where you suddenly get um, a lot of pain. So there's a lot of side effects there that are slightly different and slightly harder perhaps to manage or have more impact yeah. on patients' quality of life. The, the weight gain is an interesting one. I, I certainly... Um, has seen that in in a couple of people, and although by and large oncologists are happy when patients are gaining weight, actually it's it's been really problematic for them because there has changed how they feel about themselves. And I always think that how you feel about yourself is so central to quality of life. The um, the other side effects I've come across a couple of times is is cardiac. Um, and when I've shown this to one of my cardiology colleagues, um, they said, well, of course, again, looking at the, the nature of the drug and the various targets, we're not that surprised. I would certainly caution people to just keep an eye on cardiac function, certainly if people have pre-existing cardiac issues. Right. So I guess that's, and I think you make a very good point about quality of life on side effects, which is none of those side effects, metallic chaste um, and, and so on, um, dizziness, that they may not be the most terrible side effects, but when you're on a drug for two years, yeah. That can be very debilitating. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what often makes patients want to come off treatment or have treatment breaks, etc. Yeah. You know, it's it, these are really significant to patients. So you have either of those two are available, and they are approved and funded through Nice, which is good to know. Um, do you have a preference at the moment? What would be your your go to agent, or do you just sort of see how you go according from patient to patient? I think in many ways you see how you go from patient to patient, but just because of the brain metastases data, it is very tempting almost to use, um, it's tempting to use entrectinib as my first line treatment um, because of knowing the CNS data. But like we just discussed, the side effect management is crucial. Yeah, You'd need a really good patient, a fit yeah. patient to do this in. And, and I think the development of brain metastases is so awful. It's so catastrophic. Yeah. And the times it's happened where you've had someone on chrysotinib and then brain mets appear, and you kind of knew that was a risk. It, it, it's it's crushing. So I, I agree with you that entrectinib tends to be, um, if, if there's any two drugs available, well, the one I would 
tend to go for but we do have other agents and would you believe it uh with such fantastic timing of this podcast we have a couple of new agents coming through and i guess the first one with some first line data is repotrectinib which has been kind of washing around in trials for a while certainly we had trials in the uk uh over the past couple of years that was a trident study and we learned about that in the world lung meeting in singapore in autumn 2023 um, followed swiftly by FDA approval, um, has yet to get um, funding and approval in the UK. But tell us a little bit about the first line repro data. Again, I guess, com- compared to entrectinib and, and crizotinib, how do you think it stacks up? Absolutely. So I think what we haven't talked about briefly, Tom, in the previous um, drug treatments, and probably important to say is that there's certain resistance mutations that develop um, yeah. when you treat with crizotinib and entrectinib. Um, which are quite important. And one of them that's been notoriously difficult to target has been what they call the solvent, one of the solvent front mutations, G2032R. So when you're looking at newer drugs coming out, you're looking to try and target the resistance mutations that you're seeing with crizotinib and intractinib, et cetera. Yeah. So um, reprotractinib that came out is a, is a next generation, ROS1, again, entrac uh, uh, inhibitor as well, but it specifically was designed to try and overcome some of these target resistance mutations um, particularly the, um, the uh, G2032R mutation as well. Um, and as you said, it was very recently, I think November the 15th, that the FDA um, announced that it had approved repotractinib for the treatment of locally advanced or metastatic ROS1. And you're looking at both treatment naive patients, so ROS1 TKA naive, as well as ROS1 TKI pretreated and refractory patients, so both groups. Um, so looking at the data, so repotractinib is taken initially at a dose of 160 milligrams once daily, and then you step up the dosing. So it goes yep. up to twice daily after a week. So that's slightly different to all the other um, drug treatments that we've been using. And the Trident one was a phase two global multicenter trial, and it had four cohorts, basically covering every aspect of ROS1. So either TKI naive, TK, one prior TKI, two prior TKIs, or prior TKI and chemotherapy. So basically anyone could enter this trial. You fit one of the arms probably. Yep. And if we... If we look at the TKI naive patients, there were about 71, 71 patients in that group, and you're getting overall response rates in the order of about 79%. You're getting a medium duration of response of 34 months. So you're getting a very durable response with these treatments. Um, and again, a median progression-free survival of 35.7 months. The overall survival is very good with these drugs from what we have, the data we have so far. So you're getting at 12 months and 91% overall survival at 18 months, 85% overall survival. So looking very promising in the survival stakes, but we need do, much Do you think that, that that confers, is that better than entrectinib? Is that better than crizotinib? Or do you think that's, they're all kind of on, on, on a par? So the overall data, um, so we didn't talk about the intracranial response rates, which are are better, I think, in right. many ways. You're getting about 89% intracranial response rates with this drug. So I think I would I would say that it is probably better or slightly better than the data that we're seeing so far um, in the ROS1 TKI naive patients. But obviously this was um, patients who had had a follow-up time of about 21.5 months when it reported. So it's still in many ways early data. Yeah. We do yeah. need to see more mature data coming through before we make the direct comparison with the other trials. But I think it's looking extremely promising. And also in the ROS1 TKI refractory patients, so the ones who've had a previous line of treatment such as crizotinib, um, with those uh, mutations, particularly the G2032R, you're seeing response rates of 59%. So 
this is a drug that can be used in patients who have um, resistance mutations developing the previous drugs. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so that was the, and so just to focus a little bit more on that, that second line data, as you said, Trident had a whole bunch of arms in there for everyone. Um, the 2032 resistance mutation has kind of been a bit of a problem for other second line TKIs, um, for example, or Latinip has yes. been sometimes struggled with that or definitely struggles with that. Um, what's your take on the second line data? Is this saying to us, well, we can use entrectinib first and then keep repro for second line or, you know, crisotinib first and repro second line? Or do we not really have enough to to guide us on that? I think that's we... uh, protocol. Yeah, I think I think we have to obviously wait for some more mutual data to come through. At the moment, the second line data is looking quite comparable. Overall response rates around 38%. Again, you're getting the PFS of nine months, overall survival of 20 months. So it's 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 similar data. But what we, um, it's, it's the difficult with the sequencing, I always find of drugs, because your temptation is always to use your best drug first, if possible. And what we're seeing with the TKI naive patients is, and actually in both groups, the pretreated as well as the naive patients, is the time to first intracranial progression. And actually none had had intracranial progression within the first 18 months of treatment on these drugs, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, um, and the, so the rate of intracranial progression is low. And there's a feeling that perhaps this drug may actually have delayed or even prevented some brain metastases in patients from developing early. Mm. So, when you've got that sort of data, it's very tempting to want to use it as your superior first line drug, because if you're using it in a sequential way, we all know that not every person who progresses on a first line TKI will either be well enough to go on to a second line TKI, nor do we know that those will respond because the response rates aren't 100% on these drugs. So there's no guarantee that they're going to have really right. good responses either. So I don't know, but there's always that temptation for me to say, well, I want to use my best drug with the best responses first. But I think we do need to wait for some more data to come through on this before we make yeah. those decisions. I agree. And I, I think you're right about trying to choose your best drug first. And that's often when people have the best quality of life. And the consistent feature for all second line TKIs um, is that the response rate drops down and the duration of response drops down. Um, talking about that, um, lorlatinib, uh, again, this is outside of its license indication, but it does have some evidence in second line use. But the 2032 resistance mutation is a kind of Achilles heel there because yes, lorlatinib yes. is much less effective in that patient group. But outside of that, it probably does have some activity, doesn't it? Did you? What's your view on that? So I think it does. Um, it does have activity. Um, it's not obviously approved for use in the ROS one patient group. Um, so that's one of the big drawbacks is that we can't really use it here. But I think um, in patients who had been treated with crizotinib before, you are getting the same sorts of sort of data. The overall response rate is about thirty five percent. Duration response thirteen months. PFS eight point five months. Um, and the intracranial response rate in patients who had CNS metastases was around 50%. So that's actually slightly better than repetractinib yeah. actually, in terms of oh, the intracranial. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that is a tempting feature of lorlatinib in many ways. It's also, yeah. it does have its side effect profile, but maybe slightly better tolerated in some of the um, side effects. But of course, that solvent front mutation, the G2032R, you get no response to that. So yeah. um, that's the, the reason why you might not want to use it. So 
there's a temptation that you might want to use it if you knew that a patient um, didn't have the G2032R mutation yeah. and had CNS yeah. mets, yeah. all the ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah. But I can see why some people might want to use that. And it's a frustration in ROS1, given its rarity, that so many of these drugs, like Lawler, are not licensed. Um, and therefore they're not available to us, uh, even though we have drugs that work. And I think it's a huge frustration. I'm hoping with the arrival of new agents you mentioned and a couple more we're going to get onto in a second, that this might change. Would you therefore, let's say you've had someone on for argument's sake, entrectinib, and they progress, would, would you re-biopsy them to do that repeat molecular testing? Or because in reality, at the moment, NHS, that's not going to change what you do, do you tend not to because it's of academic interest, but perhaps less of practical benefit? Yeah, I mean, we would tend at this stage not to in standard routine clinical practice because it's not changing what we do. Um, and also, um, you know, that we have access to rebiopsy. Things like small cell transformation, et cetera, are very rare. So if it was only for that reason that you might want to consider rebiopsy, but it's not changing, it's not giving you a mutation status and it's not telling you that you can access some other extra treatments. It usually ends up being chemotherapy for these patients. Yeah. So actually we're just tending to move on to chemotherapy without a rebiopsy. But I think if centers can do it or if it's a research trial-based, rebiopsies are crucial because with any new treatment coming out, Tom, you have to know what the resistance mutations are and you have to know how you might want to then target them in the future. So I think we'd love to do it and we'd love to know more just for academic interest, but that's not where we are at the moment in no. routine practice. I think you're absolutely right. You have to be honest with someone, the patient to say, if you're going to do a biopsy, what, what's it really going to tell them? Because every time you stick a needle into anything, you can cause you can cause trouble. Um, you know, I, I agree with you completely. And, and I think that's um, that is very uh, uh, important point. So let's imagine we've ex we've used up our TKIs, um, which at the moment isn't very difficult because we haven't got that many available. Yeah. But perhaps in the future, we've had more and we have we have worked our way through the series, which I think you described very nicely. Um, we will come to chemo, which is always a very difficult thing, because although we may have mentioned from the beginning that chemotherapy is going to be an integral part of what we do, it's a very important treatment, it is still very challenging. People have moved away from the tablet every day, feeling okay to something every three weeks and anxiety about um, chemos. When you do think about chemotherapies, what regimens are you using? And I guess I'm thinking, really, are you using the Pemetrexa platinum type thing, or are you looking at the the Impower one hundred and fifty, Carbo Taxol Atizo, uh, Avastin quadruplet? Um, does it make a difference? Um, what's your preference? So our current preference, to be honest with you, is we've just gone back to Pemetrexa platinum at the moment. I think that the quadruple regime has gone in and out of favour and perhaps comes back into favour because. I think there's still a lot of uncertainties about the role of immunotherapy in patients with driver mutations um, and the use of anti-angiogenics as well. So I think, I think you know, we have the sort of the subset analysis in the Empower 150 trial that showed that there was some benefit in people with the targeted mutations, possibly more with EGFR, the data, than of course, because ROS1 yeah. would be a very rare mutation to, to have that in. So it's not really the group that they were looking at. And traditionally, we know that immunotherapy alone is not effective in patients with um, driver mutations. Um, ROS1 positive tumors don't really express PDL1 in high levels, um, have a low tumor mutation burden, just as with other mutations. So 
the question is, what does immunotherapy, for example, add to that regimen? And from ESMO this year, we also know that the Keynote 789 trial, not looking at ROS1, obviously, was looking at EGFR, but didn't show a benefit of immunotherapy added yeah, to absolutely. chemo. Um, no PFS or OS benefit. But then you had the ATLAS trial, which was looking at the chemo Avasta and atezolizumab combination, the ABCP quadruple compared to platinum pemetrexid, which actually did show some improvement in response rates and PFS, um, suggesting there might be a role of the quadruple regimen over your standard of care platinum pemetrexid. And whether that's the immunotherapy, whether that's the, the chemo arm choice with the carbotaxel, whether that's the Avastin added in, it's all a little bit less clear as to what yeah, um, it would be, even in common mutations like EGFR. So with ROS1 at the moment, we are still going for platinum permetrexid, but are open to change when data suggests otherwise. I think- And I, and I think you're right about the um, the uncertainty on that data. Certainly the, the Empower 150 data, I, I think has the strength of that data has, has diminished over time as we yeah. see more mature follow-up. And um, I feel that it's certainly a regimen which has more side effects and hair loss being the predominant one. And as you say, these are younger patients. And it is a more, some more challenging. Absolutely. Um, We've had problems with hypertension and management as well in some of our patients. So that, yeah, it's definitely a more toxic regimen. Perhaps a conversation to, to have, but certainly I think the majority of oncologists would be with you heading down the, the Pemetrexid um, and carboplatin or cisplatin route. And I'd agree completely that single agent immunotherapy is not something we should be doing. This is an inactive agent by itself and although this is the patient group by demographics you probably know about immunotherapy and want to have it we've got to be very clear with people Absolutely. this is a, this is not yes. something to be throwing around yeah even if they have high pdl1 expression which is always the, the question that patients have so yeah Absolutely. we've got to be very firm it's, about it's, that. it's a misleading um yeah. metric yeah. so in our last few minutes we're just going to come on to the new data because as mentioned we have timed this perfectly and there has been some new data um we're going to start off at a meeting literally last week, which I wasn't at because you and I were busy beavering away at home and looking after the patients. But uh, people were in ESMO Asia was the meeting looking at talatrectinib, which is a trust one study. Um, we've obviously only seen a little bit of data because it's literally just come out. I didn't even have a chance to see that. But what's your view on talatrectinib? Is this the new kid on the block? Is it better than repro or is it a bit of a me too moment? Yeah, so I haven't fully been able to look at the Asia data, Tom, it hasn't all come out fully for us to see, but it's not, um, data has been presented in multiple areas this year. So um, I think there was um, some data in the European Lung Cancer Conference on the TRUST1, which is the, 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 the part of the study that was run in China, essentially. TRUST1 was run in China, TRUST2 is the global um, study looking at talitrectinib. Um, and it's interesting because it's, Again, it's a TKI targeting ROS1, but it still has the, the track um, inhibition as well. So the side effect profile of these drugs are very um, probably very similar. It's again looking to target the various resistance mutations that develop in after use of the first line drugs. So a lot of some of the Me Too elements there, I guess, with Repertrectinib as well. You're getting in the in some of the data that's been presented, what you're seeing is slightly better response rates, perhaps, compared to the drugs that we've seen so far. Um, and so what you're looking at in some of the crizotinib treatment naive patients, initially in the TRUST2 data, some of the data presented at ESMO showed that there were over response rates of about 92% seen with these drugs. Um, and in pretreated patients, about 57%. And very robust intracranial responses as well in the TKI naive, about 80%. 
and about 63% in the TKI pretreated patients. So um, I think some of the data suggests it's similar to repotractinib, but perhaps with slightly more superior response rates, et cetera. But like you say, there's it, again, this is early data, they're new drugs. We have to wait for mature data yep. to come through. Adverse event profile, pretty similar again. You've got a bit of the transaminitis and then the track-related events, the taste disturbances, the peripheral neuropathy, et cetera. So that all still exists, which sort of really makes you want to think about a drug targeting ROS1 that doesn't target track as well. You're looking for those yeah. drugs that are different, aren't you, to get a slightly different, more tolerable profile of side effects, but yet still be clinically effective. That's very helpful. Um, NVL520 is by a drug company called New Valence. Yes. Now that's been doing the rounds in ALK and yes. certainly has some activity. We don't know very much about ROS1. It's very early doors. Have you seen any data or is this a kind of wait and see moment? So it's very early, extremely early, but it's a very exciting drug, I think, because in many ways it is one of those drugs that we were just talking about. So it's um, it inhibits ROS1, but it doesn't really have appreciable track inhibition. And that, I think, is going to make this perhaps a successful and more tolerable drug mm -hmm. in our ROS1 population. So um, we've got very preliminary results. It's a phase one trial. Um, and you're showing that basically you've got very good tolerability. It's because it's a phase one, you're looking at the recommended phase two dose, which has been um, put up as 100 milligrams. But despite all of this, there was no maximum tolerated dose level reached with this drug. So uh, showing that it is actually a very tolerable drug. Mm -hmm. um, and there were no concerns regarding safety and efficacy in the data we've had so far. But it is early. Um, and it's currently being investigated, I think, in the ARAS-1 trial. So that's um, something to look out for in the future, which is a first in human phase one and two clinical trial. And I think it really is one to look out for, particularly in terms of the potentially better tolerability. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly one that um, the uh, Ros Wonders uh, patient groups are often picking up on as being a very interesting drug. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just use that opportunity to shout out to the um, patient advocacy, advocacy groups. Ros Wonders, great name. And there's both a UK and a global Ros Wonders group. And I think they're fantastic. And I think if any of our listeners have patients who are looking for patient support groups, I'd strongly recommend that you mm -hmm. uh, put them in contact with our friends there. The last bit I'm going to just ask you about is rather randomly, perhaps, TROP2 antibody drug conjugates, because we've seen a slew of data about TROP2 ADCs. Um, coming out at ESMO this year. And the headline data, the, pl the plenary session was all about the second line um, versus toxitaxel data. But actually, perhaps on the more interesting data is the tropion lung 5 data. So this is a TROP2 ADC data potamab. Um, and it was in this one really focused on patients with actionable genomic alterations, AGAs, in other words, patients with natural mutation. And there weren't a huge number of ROS1 patients, but there were some. Um, and I think the majority of the benefit we're seeing this drug is going to be in patients with EGFR and, and ALK, perhaps, because it's more common. But what's interesting about TROP2 ADCs is they do seem to be more active, as far as we can tell at the moment, in patients who do have an actionable genomic alteration. Did you catch that tropion lung 5 data? Were you interested by that? Or do you think we're, we're way too early and we should just all get back in our box and calm down? I think it's really hard not to get excited about some of the antibody drug conjugates coming through just because it's a, it's a novel class. It's different. It's quite exciting, really. And it's 
going to be very interesting to see the responses we see. Um, so I did catch up with the trip in lung five because it was something different, wasn't it, to see an animal yeah. drug conjugate in our group of um, driver mutation uh, patients. And you're right, they were looking at all of the mutations there. There, I think in total 137 patients, but the majority had EGFR, I think over half, which would be expected, but they had ALKROS, NTRAG, BRAF, RETMET. So they had the whole, the whole lot in there. The whole gamut. Or the whole gamut. And actually, um, the majority of these had undergone multiple lines of therapy. So they were pre extensively pre-treated patients in many ways. But there was some really promising data again, because considering their pre-treatment, there was an overall response rate of about 35.8%. So not unlike some of the ones, you're, the responses you're seeing with your second line agents as well, and disease control rates of 78%, and a median duration of response about seven months. So while that in itself perhaps isn't quite as exciting in terms of the actual data and responses, I think it's a very exciting class of drugs. I think the data is early. And I think there will be more that comes out in this field. So I do think that there is the potential for drugs like um, DATO-DXD to provide some clinical benefit and also expand the limited treatment sort of arm, uh, uh, armamentary yeah. that we have in this group of patients, give something different, yeah. different side effect profile, another option. Even if it's similar, it's another option. So I think, I think for me, certainly I was... I was very excited to see the data that's coming yeah, out. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. If you look back at how long we've known about ROS4, we don't actually have multiple lines of TKI therapy. If you're lucky, you might get two. Um, and then we're falling back onto chemo. So I think you're right. Thinking about a different treatment paradigm, maybe an ADC, uh, would, would, would be a welcome change. I, I agree. I, I think probably the most interesting data in lung, TROP2 ADC so far, is actually in the mutation-positive patients. Um, and that may well reflect to do with their, their top two expression. Um, and I, we'll leave it there. You, you've been heroically uh, guiding us through this, and I'm certainly uh, better informed than I was uh, 40 minutes ago. So um, thank you very much for giving your evening to uh, go through ROS1. Thank you to our audience for um, sticking with us and listening to this. We will have finishing up on our mutation um, positive uh, little kind of sub-series. We've got a couple more to go. Um, and then we will turn our attention to other subjects. So thank you very much for joining us um, and good night. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on BTOG, including educational events and how to join, of course, you can visit www.btog.org. Just to remind you, we would love to hear your comments, thoughts, questions about things we discussed. And for the really interesting ones, we'll even discuss them in our next uh, podcast. You can contact us on info at btog.org org or on Twitter at btog.org. Thank you very much.